The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, power and prejudices. This year, 2024, is an election year in America, a presidential election year. And so we will be doing two podcasts a week rather than our usual one, because we want to and because we know you can't get enough Americano in your life. I am delighted to be joined today by Joshua Green, who is national correspondent for Bloomberg Business Week, and he was the author of Devil's Bargain, which was a best-selling and fascinating book about uh, the relationship between Steve Bannon and Donald Trump. Uh, but he is the author of a new book, which is entitled The Rebels, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and the struggle for a new American politics, which is, as you can probably tell from the title, about uh, the left of American politics, um, not the right, as the devil's bargain was. Um, Joshua, thank you for coming on to Americano. I uh, thought I would start where you start in the book, which is to say that the 2008 financial crisis is, is a formative moment for the Democratic Party as it is now. But you go back a little bit further in the early chapters and look at how uh, Jimmy Carter tried to push the Democratic Party left, particularly on money, on capitalism, and that this was, this this process just failed or was stalled all the way through to 2008. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the thesis in the book is that is that the 2008 financial crisis was the defining and history shaping uh, event. In, in my adult lifetime, I've been a Washington political reporter for 25 years. And, you know, as, as I tell the story of these three characters, I'm really writing about the rise of left-wing populism in the Democratic Party, which, which hadn't really existed before the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, but that crash gave rise to uh, a brand of politician like Elizabeth Warren, like Bernie Sanders, uh, that's really steered the party to the left, especially on economics. Uh, and it did that in large part because of the furious backlash that Americans had uh, to the financial crisis and to the government's response to that crisis. So on the right, we saw the rise of, of the Tea Party, Steve Bannon, Donald Trump. Um, but there was also a big reaction on the left. And that was due in large part, uh, I argue, uh, to dissatisfaction with the recovery and an anger among Democratic voters, a very deep anger that the party, their own party, which was supposed to represent labor and workers, was complicit in bailing out Wall Street and kind of screwing the average American. So the history uh, that I try to illuminate in the book in, in the outset is to explain how it was that the Democratic Party came to fall under the sway uh, of Wall Street. Uh, and that story begins, as you said, with Jimmy Carter in 1978, uh, who was trying to push a uh, left-wing tax code, was completely rolled by his own party, and wound up, uh, Democrats wound up after Carter's loss, so allergic to the idea of anything populist or left-wing that they moved completely in the other direction and set the Democratic Party on a, a pro-business, uh, neoliberal path, 
gave rise to politicians like Bill Clinton, who were very successful for a while, uh, but culminated in the 2008 uh, financial collapse uh, and the Democrats' inability to kind of engineer a satisfying recovery. And that, that really changed the direction of, of the country and the Democratic Party specifically in a way that I think my three characters illuminate. Mm. And as you put it, it moves, you used the terms uh, labor-centered liberalism and finance-centered liberalism. Yeah, I think that's a good way of, of, of distinguishing the different eras in the Democratic Party. You know, from, from um, FDR's time until Carter's time, Democrats were really defined as the party of labor. Organized labor was the backbone of the Democratic Party. Uh, it provided um, the muscle, the votes, a lot of the money. Uh, but by the time we get to the 1970s, uh, labor is in steep decline. Uh, there's a series of oil crises and inflation crises. Uh, Carter himself was a weak president. Uh, and it became clear in 1980, uh, when Ronald Reagan was elected, that uh, the new era of American politics was going to be a televised era. And that was going to require a lot of money for TV ads. And Democrats, in their desperation, uh, both to move on from Carter, but also to come up with the funds to compete with Ronald Reagan, began turning toward uh, Wall Street financiers, initially as fundraisers, to try and fill their coffers uh, and fight back the Reagan revolution, which they, they succeeded in doing to an extent, especially in Congress. Uh, but eventually those Wall Street actors came to assume prominent roles in the Democratic Party. So you have people like Bob Rubin, the former Goldman Sachs CEO, who initially was a fundraiser for Walter Mondale, the 1984, the, the hapless uh, 1984 Democratic challenger to Ronald Reagan, uh, and eventually, eventually uh, Rubin wound up in Bill Clinton's White House as his single most important economic advisor. And so you, you can sort of tell the story of Democratic history um, moving away from labor and under the sway of finance. And I think that that helps to explain how we arrived at 2008, how the Democrats did, both in deregulating an economy to the extent that we had the, the epic financial crisis that we did, uh, and also why in the wake of that crisis, the recovery was geared mostly toward the banks and not so much toward uh, the middle class as it was after the COVID crash in 2020. Uh, well, that brings me on to uh, what I wanted to ask about next, which is Barack Obama, because of course, 2008 was the year of the financial crash, but it was also the year of the election of Barack Obama and a, a, a kind of tidal wave of hope, not just about Obama as a as a as a mixed race figure and as an inspiration to young people and so on, but also that there would be a revival of the economic left of the Democratic Party. But this proved short lived, am I fair in in saying? Yeah, I think so. Look, I mean, by the time you get to the two thousand and eight election, American voters were so disenchanted with George W. Bush, uh, mainly because of of the war in Iraq, but also because. Uh, in his latter days, he, he presided over this financial crisis. Uh, his approval rating was something like 27%, which is a level that even Donald Trump and Joe Biden have not yet managed to reach. Uh, so Americans were ready for change. Barack Obama uh, embodied that change in sort of every way you can imagine, whether it's you know, r racial, party-wise, political, uh, his stance on the war. Uh, but he took office in the middle of the greatest uh, economic collapse since the Great Depression. Uh, and he really had no experience with finance, not much experience as a politician at all, uh, and surrounded himself with a lot of the important uh, Democratic advisors uh, on economics who had also been in the Clinton White House and usually cycled into and out of Wall Street. And so 
Uh, he had it, uh, you know, produced a, an economy that was designed largely by Wall Street bankers and their Democratic allies, uh, and it wound up serving bankers, uh, in, you know, and their allies in a way that neglected, uh, I think, ordinary middle class folks, which became clear, you know, w- within a year or so of, of of the collapse. You see the rise of the Tea Party on the right, of Occupy Wall Street on the left, uh, but you also have emerging at this time um, characters like Elizabeth Warren who first came to public prominence as uh, the oversight cop of the Wall Street bailout. It was the, the technical name for it was a troubled asset relief program. We all remember the kind of flurry of acronyms that all these programs had. Uh, but Warren was one of five people who was appointed to kind of oversee how this money was being spent. This was supposed to be a kind of backwater, forgettable job. It had no real subpoena power. But, but Warren, through the strength of her personality and her media platform turned it into a public platform to attack uh, Obama, Tim Geithner, the Treasury Secretary, uh, and really the whole idea of a bank-focused recovery, and started a movement that gave rise to um, what, in fairly short order, became known as the Elizabeth Warren wing of the Democratic Party. People listened. uh, It became a movement. Other politicians fell under her sway. And this strain of left populism that really hadn't existed in American politics since the 1940s or 1950s uh, came roaring back in the wake of the crisis. Yes. And she, in many ways, is the, is the, the central figure of your book, you, you, that Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are a big part of it too. But in, in many ways, she's the uh, almost tragic figure in a way because she is the outsider who 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 tried eventually to be an insider who was uncomfortable with doing it who was never able to accommodate to the the, the grubby compromises that you have to make in power is uh, again am i right in saying that I, I i think that's right i mean i think all three of my characters warren bernie and aoc were all outsiders were all you know rebels as, as the title has it who who wound up kind of coming inside uh, but warren was certainly the first figure to do that and you know she was slightly different than uh, Sanders and AOC in the sense that even before she came to politics, she was a fully credentialed member of uh, elite establishment as a Harvard Law School professor, uh, had already made a name for herself, not in, not in politics, uh, but in academia. But when she came in, I mean, she had a f- kind of fully formed philosophy of what had gone wrong in the crash, who was to blame for it, and what ought to be done about it. And in Warren's telling, uh, the bailout should have been focused at middle class uh, homeowners. Uh, at the time, you can go back and look at what she prescribed. It was things like uh, stimulus payments, student loan freezes, small business loans, eviction moratoriums, uh, all the stuff that Democrats and Republicans wound up doing 15 years later after the COVID crash. Uh, but at the time, she was ignored. And uh, Warren uh, was an early pioneer of social media. She used uh, YouTube videos. Uh, she went on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, which was the hottest show in the country uh, 2008, 2009, uh, and really became more than a political figure. She became a cultural figure that uh, you know, embodied uh, the Democratic backlash to, to what was happening. Uh, and I think Democrats could see um, elected officials, but, but certainly the kind of younger generation of Democrats, that this was someone who made a lot of sense. It was somebody they wanted to follow. Uh, the difficulty for Warren is in how she took that, that kind of cultural capital and translated it into political capital. Uh, initially, she had wanted to run the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. 
which was one of the responses to the 2008 crisis. But by that point, she was such a polarizing figure uh, that Obama didn't really have the nerve to elect her. So instead, she wound up uh, running for Senate uh, in Massachusetts in 2012, got elected and and became a a sort of beachhead uh, in the U.S. Senate for this brand uh, of left-wing populism that proved to be very popular. The kind of Hamlet routine that Warren engaged in over the next pop uh, over the next couple of years was she was so fo- popular that there was a draft movement to get her to run for president in 20, 2016 uh, against Hillary Clinton. And Warren sort of went back and forth with, do I like being an outsider? Do I want to do this? Or do I want to challenge Clinton? I'll probably lose, but uh, I could kind of bring my ideas to the fore. Uh, and in the end, Warren decided not to run, and that's when Bernie Sanders kind of stepped in and took the baton. Uh, but it left Warren in the awkward position of having to choose between uh, endorsing an ideological soulmate in Sanders uh, and cozying up to Clinton, who everybody thought correctly uh, was probably going to win the Democratic nomination uh, and thought incorrectly uh, was very likely to be president in 2016. And Warren chose to to go with Clinton to try and exert influence there. Uh, and of course, that went tragically awry Uh, when Clinton lost to Donald Trump uh, in 2016. And do you think that more than anything finished Warren as a figure? Because she tried to re-emerge in in 2020 as a presidential candidate. It didn't go very well. Was she seen as a traitor by the movement then because she endorsed? Uh, Yeah, you know, I I think she viewed herself as being the real leader of this movement because she was uh, from 2008 until about 2014, where she decided not to run. Elected Democrats, most of them lived in terror uh, of Elizabeth Warren because she had this huge following, this movement behind her uh, that would flood congressional switchboards that would cause all kinds of pain and unpleasantness for Democrats who crossed her or supported banks. Uh, and when she decided not to run, Bernie Sanders essentially took that mantle and and became the figurehead of the movement himself. So I do think that 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 sort of ended her her time as the undisputed leader uh, of the Democratic left wing, because when we get to 2020, um, neither Sanders nor Warren wanted to defer to the other one. And so that had uh, the effect of, of splitting uh, the left wing vote, the left populist vote in the Democratic primaries uh, in a way that guaranteed neither of the two of them would win the election. And that's part of the reason why we wound up with Joe Biden uh, as Democratic nominee and eventually president. Yeah. Well, let's move on to Bernie Sanders, because... Uh... He, I mean, for a lot of our uh, British listeners, the the comparisons between Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn, at a superficial level anyway, are pretty interesting in that they are both quite grumpy old men who I think you describe them as a gadfly, regarded by Democratic insiders as a, as a gadfly. Corbyn was regarded as a sort of nuisance figure in the party, always causing problems, always objecting to everything. And then suddenly, in the wake of you know these populist revolts and so on, both these men spring out of nowhere very quickly to become the figureheads of, of the left in their, in their respective countries. Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, when I, when I first came to Washington in 2000 and started covering Congress, Bernie Sanders was viewed, you know, not just as a gadfly, uh, but kind of a jerk. You know, Democrats didn't like him. Uh, I talked to Barney, uh, Barney Frank, longtime Massachusetts Democrat, who, who disp- you know, for the book, who, who just openly <laughs> despised and disparaged Sanders, who... Uh, he thought was, you know, a prima donna who was so obsessed with his own image as a purist that he never cooperated uh, and as a result never advanced any of his own principles. It was really a pain in everyone's ass. And what changed in after 2008, uh, and certainly what changed uh, by the time Sanders got into the presidential race in 2015, was the context. You know, before the financial crisis, you know, 
having uh, you know an old white-haired guy, a backbencher and congressman, screaming about Wall Street and sort of objecting to what his own party was doing, it, it was easy to ignore because it didn't seem important. But in the wake of the 2008 crash, and especially after the rise of Warren, there was a, a movement, a left-wing democratic movement, uh, that was searching for a leader. And you know, the two groups, the two draft Warren groups, uh, that had arisen to try and pull her into the presidential race. Uh, once she made it clear that she wasn't going to run, they turned around and got behind Bernie Sanders. So when he decided to run for president in 2015, uh, he not only had uh, a draft movement behind him, but he had a, a rising wing of the Democratic Party that believed what he believed, uh, that was looking for a champion, and that wanted someone who, like Warren had, was was pure of heart, angry, and could articulately criticized the democratic establishment that had uh, not only produced a party that led to the crisis, but had failed over the five or six years since then to produce a satisfying recovery. And, you know, if there's one thing nobody can question about Bernie Sanders, and I assume this is true with Jeremy Corbyn too, it's his own personal authenticity. Uh, he's, he's kind of incorruptible, a curmudgeon. He's the furthest thing from a slick, poll-tested politician uh, and I think one of the reasons that Sanders became so popular with young people, became sort of a meme figure, was that he represented uh, the opposite of everything the Democrats loathed at the time. I mean, here was a guy who was old, incorruptible, and cranky, who was going to tell it like it was. Uh, and in 2015, if you were a Democrat, uh, that was very appealing. And I think it's why Sanders went on to win 23 states and raise more money than Hillary Clinton did, even though he didn't manage to, to wrest the nomination from her. And interestingly, a bit like Joe Biden, in fact, he predated the neoliberal episode. You know, he, he was alive before the neoliberalism that, that everybody on the left now resents so strongly. Yeah, I think, you know, the other part of the appeal, I covered Bernie a lot um, during that race in 2015 and 2016. Uh, I think the appeal for a lot of people was that he had a fully formed and coherent personal philosophy of politics, uh, of what had gone wrong uh, and who is to blame? And I, and I think people, when they when they speculate about about his appeal, don't fully appreciate how attractive that was uh, in America in 2015. We'd gone through six, seven years of grinding austerity. Uh, the jobs lost in the 2008 finan uh, financial crash st still hadn't been fully recovered by then. We didn't have the kind of roaring recovery from the crisis we did after COVID. Standard of living wasn't increasing. Wages weren't increasing. Student debt was soaring. Uh, and so for a lot of Americans, especially Americans under 30 uh, who are college educated, life wasn't very good. They were really angry about it. And the fact that Sanders could tell a clear story about who was to blame uh, explained a lot of his appeal. And if we look at the election of Donald Trump, uh, you're quite clear in the book that this was a, another key moment for the Democratic Party, because whereas uh, finance-centered liberalism was in retreat, and that war seemed to be being won by the left of the Democratic Party, suddenly you had this moment where everybody who was not a Republican or not a Trump supporter even was radicalised, uh, and there was a sort of moment of social cohesion in the resistance to Trump. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, look, de Demo the, de the Democratic Party and the Democratic establishment were in complete denial that a, a leftist backlash even existed, Des despite you know Bernie's considerable success in, in challenging hit, uh, Clinton in the Democratic primary, they were in complete denial that this thing really existed until election night when Clinton lost to Donald Trump. 
Uh, and that caused Democrats at, at the top of the party to wake up and say to themselves, holy shit, what just happened? How is it that uh, a figure like Donald Trump, who all of them viewed as, as uh, a clown, uh, was able to get himself elected president? And I think at that point, Democrats looked inward and realized that, gee, you know, maybe there really is something to what Elizabeth Warren has been talking about, to what Bernie Sanders has been talking about. Uh, there really is a left-wing backlash. Uh, we don't walk on water. We, we really do need to respond to our constituents who are angry about this. Uh, and in short order, you had both uh, Bernie and Warren being elevated in the Senate Democratic leadership. And the nature of what the party stood for and what it began to talk about shifted more in the direction that they wanted. So much so that by the time you get to 2020 and Democrats are preparing to try and pry Donald Trump out of the White House, party had swung so far to the left that the 2020 primaries were all about left-wing ideas like whether there should be a wealth tax, uh, whether Americans should uh, abolish private health insurance and replace it with a $30 trillion Medicare for all plan, whether illegal boarding crossings should be criminalized. Uh, things swung, you know, the pendulum swung so far to the left, uh, the party was almost unrecognizable from what it had been 15 years earlier. I think it swung so far uh, that a lot of Democratic voters weren't willing to go along. And so you see that neither Warren uh, nor Sanders emerged as the Democratic nominee. Uh, voters instead went with, with Biden, who was viewed as uh, safer, more moderate, and more likely to do what all Democratic voters really wanted out of the 2020 election, which, which was to nominate someone uh, who could pry Donald Trump out of the White House. And uh, they wagered correctly that, that Joe Biden would be that figure. But even, even in Biden's race, if you look at what Biden talked about and stood for um, compared to, to the sort of figure he was in the 1980s and 1990s, which is a openly pro-corporate Democrat, um, you can see the effect that these left-wing populists had on the party because Biden, once he got the nomination, pivoted to the left, started talking about things like the Green New Deal, started uh, proposing ways for America to recover from the COVID crash since we were in the middle of the COVID pandemic by then. Uh, and once he was elected, governed, at least on economics, in much the same way that a President Warren or a President Sanders would have governed, with multiple rounds of stimulus checks for the middle class uh, and all the policies from uh, you know uh, student loan freezes to eviction moratoriums and so on. Uh, that Warren had been proposing for the last crisis 15 years earlier. Uh, and in doing so, he appealed to uh, a lot of uh, swing voters who had gone from Obama to Trump because uh, he seemed to be looking after their interests as uh, working class blue collar Americans. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's hard to know, you know, how much of his support was um, based on economics and kind of blue collar working class concerns and how much was simply an exhaustion with Donald Trump as president. But what we can see clearly is that in, in, in places that have uh, kind of uh, white working class manufacturing based economies, states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, Rust Belt states, uh, those are all three states that Donald Trump carried in 2016. Uh, that's why he was elected president. Uh, and all three are states that Biden swept in 2020 that allowed him to win again. And these three states, I think, are going to be pivotal again this fall. You know, if, if either Trump or Joe Biden wins those three states again, th that man is going to be president. And so certainly there, there I think, is a big appeal, at least among some voters, to having more of a, a working class focused economic policy, one that wasn't quite as deferential to Wall Street. Uh, and I think that's also why we've seen Joe Biden govern in the way that he has. 
uh, doing things like um, uh, you know, sending billions of dollars to try and reshore manufacturing jobs, to try and build new electric vehicle and battery plants and deindustrialized places in America that have fallen behind and turned to figures like Donald Trump. Uh, the hope there for Democrats uh, is to begin to uh, wind back the clock uh, and see if they can uh, reassert some of the appeal that they've traditionally held to working class types, just to ordinary you know, working families who aren't wrapped up in culture wars, who don't follow politics day to day, but who are concerned really about, do I have a job? Do I have a retirement account? Um, can my kids graduate from college? If they do, can they live here locally or do they have to move to a big city? Uh, all the sorts of things that as reporters, uh, you know, we hear when we go out into middle America and talk to voters about what it is that they're looking for in a presidential candidate. The other person in the book that we haven't really talked about uh, so far is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And she represents, she was elected in 2018, she represents the, the youthful progressive wing of the party and is caught up a little bit in cultural wars. I, I know that she, I think she wants to get away from that, but uh, she inevitably is seen as the kind of radical woke left that the Republicans denounce so often. Do you see her as the future of the party or do you think the party will have to find someone a joe biden like figure but younger who is able to speak to middle america who's able to use a language that isn't riddled with progressive talk mm. yeah i mean aoc is is fascinating in the sense that she's really um sort of a progeny of bernie sanders she came into politics through the, the Sanders campaign in 2015, 2016. She's representative of that generation of millennial voters who graduated college in the wake of the great financial crisis, couldn't get a job, struggled getting health care and student debt. So sort of emblematic of all the ways that the great financial crisis uh, and the weakness of the recovery affected that generation of Democrats who, not surprisingly, tended to move very much to the left compared to earlier generations. AOC is interesting in the sense that uh, she really came out of nowhere. The, the Democratic congressman she beat, Joe Crowley, was a veteran and uh, a member of Democratic leadership, was widely viewed as the successor to Nancy Pelosi. We all thought he was going to be the next Speaker of the House and became comfortable, ignored his own base and left himself open to an upset challenge from AOC. You know, her big issue coming in was that you know, she was a radical, she was a social democrat, she was an activist, uh, she occupied Nancy Pelosi's office uh, famously with environmental protesters even before she was sworn in uh, into the Congress, uh, but she really wasn't very effective for the first six months in Congress. And although she became uh, a sort of figurehead of everything that conservatives hate uh, about Democrats, uh, became a, a celebrity on Fox News. It, it, it really took uh, an adjustment on AOC's part, I think, to understand how Congress works, how she could be more effective. She began to emulate Elizabeth Warren uh, in terms of, of creating these viral moments in congressional oversight hearings where she would sort of go after people. But she stopped occupying offices and she stopped being a radical once Joe Biden was elected and, and managed to influence his policies. Um, you know, part, part of what Joe Biden passed, the Inflation Reduction Act, contained within it uh, a $300 billion climate bill, um, which was largely a chit that Biden had given to uh, AOC, to leftists, to this rising generation of Democrats who cared about the environment. 
And so in that sense, I think she's managed to make herself into an effective Democratic congresswoman. But as you say, in the wake of George Floyd's killing and uh, the rise of this particularly outspoken brand of, of woke leftism, she has certainly become uh, an avatar of that. And I think it, it clouds her future as a Democratic presidential candidate. Certainly, I could see her in 2028 uh, if she wants to uh, running for president as a sort of factional left wing candidate in the Bernie Sanders mold. Uh, I think Sanders is probably going to retire. So that's a role that's going to be open to somebody on the left. But it's really hard to imagine in this day and age, someone as, as polarizing as, as AOC managing not just to get elected president, but even to win the Democratic nomination. Um, there is still a large crowd of kind of normal, moderate Democrats who are the base of the Democratic Party and who are not looking for, you know, radical left-wing change of the sort that I think she represents. So I, I think a, a more likely outcome for left populism is that much as Joe Biden uh, took it up, uh, it will be somebody who's a more uh, moderate centrist Democrat with broader appeal, possibly a, go a governor like Michigan's Democratic governor, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, uh, or maybe a senator like Raphael Warnock from Georgia. Uh, I think it's far likelier that they take up these economic ideas uh, and apply them in the way that Biden has, uh, provided that he gets reelected and that these ideas aren't discredited. Well, quite a lot of Biden's appeal among young people was this line that, you know, he saw himself as, or talked to himself as a bridge to the next generation of democratic leadership. And looking at the polls, particularly again among young people, there seems to be quite a lot of anger and resentment that uh, that bridge does not seem to be being crossed. It's It's more of a a wall, if you like, at the moment. I, I write about this in the book, and I think it, it, it leads to a lot of the Democratic frustration today with the fact that Biden is is so old and struggling uh, with his age in, in, in the polls and, and therefore poses a real risk for Democrats of losing the White House uh, back to Trump. Uh, you know, I haven't seen in the book where uh, right as Biden is, is wrapping up the 2020 uh, Democratic primaries, he invites all of his challengers onto, onto a stage in Michigan uh, and declares himself a transitional figure. Uh, and what a lot of people took that to mean at the time was that he would be a one-term president, that he understood that he was being elected to get Donald Trump out of the White House, but once he did, he would transition to this new generation of Democrats who are lying behind him. But for a number of reasons, that didn't happen. There is a lot of Democratic uh, expectation in 2020, 2021, even 2022, that Biden was going to step aside. But, you know, he decided not to. And I think part of that is because Biden thinks he's doing a great job as president and objectively passed a lot of uh, important laws, has, has, has done a pretty good job um, by the measuring stick that, that presidents usually use. Uh, I think part of it is that there's a lot of trepidation about Kamala Harris as, vi as vice president. Uh, for as unpopular as Biden is in polling, uh, Harris is even less popular. Uh, so stepping aside and deferring to her, I think a lot of Biden's folks think that that doesn't necessarily improve Democrats' chances of hanging on to the White House. Uh, and I think the third factor that really mattered uh, for Biden winning another term uh, was that Democrats overperformed in the 2022 midterm elections. Uh, the expectations were that the 2022 midterms would produce a, a red wave, a Republican sweep of Congress, uh, and it was just the opposite. A lot of these Trump-backed candidates failed miserably. Democrats uh, held on to the Senate, almost uh, won the House. And that 
wound up reflecting uh, well enough on Biden that none of the ambitious up-and-comers who were eyeing the White House had the confidence to challenge him. And so everyone deferred to Biden, except for uh, Dean Phillips, uh, the gadfly congressman from Minnesota. And here we are with Democrats sort of sleepwalking toward the 2024 election with Joe Biden as their nominee, despite doubts about his age and capabilities. I was going to ask, actually, what you make of Dean Phillips, because even though his campaign doesn't seem to be uh, going very far, despite a fair amount of media interest, he does seem to represent what you were suggesting there might be the sort of person who takes over the Democratic Party. I mean, he's he's mainstream enough. His politics are quite safe in many ways. And yet he speaks a Democratic Party language that is of the left. He's talking about, you know, taxing the rich more and so on. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Democrats really know what to make of Dean Phillips. You know, he, he got into this race, not very well known, wasn't popular and hired a Republican, Steve Schmidt, to be his initial campaign manager and has certainly said some left wing things. But then he's turned around and attacked Biden for his age, which is the the main uh, Republican talking point, kind of an oddball, doesn't doesn't really seem to know what he's doing or be able to kind of articulate any clear path to the nomination. Uh, so I think most Democratic voters just don't take him seriously. Um, you could see that in, in the New Hampshire primary a month ago, where even though Joe Biden wasn't on the ballot, he wound up winning the primary because uh, voters wrote in his name. I think that was a pretty clear sign that uh, Democratic voters, while they, they, they do have reservations about Joe Biden's age, uh, are, are behind Biden, realize he's going to be the nominee and prefer him to Donald Trump. And so as a party, Democrats have decided to roll the dice. And, you know, despite all the fantasies on the right about a last minute switcheroo and, you know, Michelle Obama being swapped in for Joe Biden or something like that, the Democratic nominee, barring some kind of a, a health concern, is going to be Joe Biden. And you know, most Democrats seem to be OK with that. The question really will be which of the two old, unpopular nominees running for president, Joe Biden or Donald Trump, do voters want? And Democrats are still convinced that the answer uh, in November is that enough voters will kind of hold their nose and vote for Joe Biden uh, simply because they don't want Donald Trump to be president again, that that Biden will will uh, find his way to a second term. I wanted to ask you lastly, Joshua, about uh, foreign policy, which I appreciate is not the focus of your book. But um, you mentioned the Iraq war at the beginning. And of course, for a lot of people, the the defining political moments of their their life so far have been the financial crisis of 2008 and the invasion of Iraq. And the Democratic Party's peace wing, dovish wing, if you like, has grown in power, I'd say, since uh, in, in the last few years. And it's particularly since the with the ongoing crisis in the Middle East, you're seeing a lot of Democrats now getting uh, criticised on their left about uh, supporting Israel's genocide and so on. How do you see that playing out as the, as the as the years go by? Uh, you know, it's, it's a great question. I mean, to a large part, the story in my book is the story about how the defining fissure in the Democratic Party, which was, you know, after the 2008 financial crisis, it was over economics, has has, has basically been resolved. Uh, you know, Joe Biden has taken up the left-wing economic policies of, of, of my three characters, and the party is unified behind him on economics. What's happened since October 7th, since the Hamas attack on Israel, though, is that a new fissure in the Democratic Party has opened up over foreign policy and over Israel specifically. 
um, which I think poses a serious threat to his reelection chances, um, because what it's done is sort of unwound the alliance to a large extent that, that Biden had managed to forge with people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and even Bernie Sanders, who's come out very publicly uh, criticizing Biden, criticizing the government of Israel for what they're doing. If you look at any poll today of Democratic voters, um, Democratic voters under, under 40 by like a four to one ratio uh, support Palestinians over, over Israel. And uh, the White House, I think, is, 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 is stuck and doesn't know quite what to do. It's clear they don't have influence over Netanyahu, clear their own base is rebelling. Uh, and I think looking ahead, Biden's folks can see uh, that if he doesn't do something to, to stanch this revolt, to tamp it down, uh, to keep his party unified, especially the younger voters who he's always struggled with because of his age, uh, because of the fact that he isn't an explicit left winger in the mold of a Bernie Sanders, uh, I, I think he's got real problems getting reelected. And I, I think you can see that in the struggle that Biden and the White House have had over the last few weeks and months in, in, in speaking about Israel and what's going on there uh, and responding to the democratic anger. I don't think they figured out a way to do it. But Well, the answer at the moment, which is uh, not necessarily a very good one, is, is to put Kamala Harris more, get Kamala Harris more involved uh, in Middle Eastern affairs and see how that works. Yeah, I think if there's one thing it can unify the Democratic Party, it's that it's the conviction that Kamala Harris uh, is not going to be affixed to this problem. I mean, Harris is, is almost like a garbage collector. You know, she sort of gets tossed every nasty problem in the administration, right? Her first uh, her first portfolio was the border crisis, which nobody is going to solve. Um, you know, now she's supposed to fix Middle East peace. Uh, you know, she gets handed the jobs that nobody else in the White House wants, um, you know, it, Maybe that'll help a little bit as a shield for, for Joe Biden, but but I certainly don't think it will. I think that's just a sign that the White House doesn't know what to do, uh, and it's worried about the effect that it's having on Joe Biden and Joe Biden's political popularity. Well, on that note, uh, Joshua, we'll end it. But thank you very much for coming on to Americano. It's been fascinating talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it. That's all for this episode of the Americano podcast. I'd like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Ferrose, and urge you to leave a generous, kind and warm-hearted review of this podcast on whichever platform you listen to it.